Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, now, I want to remind everyone that we have had other shows on the Civil War. Bob Johnson shared his database of black prisoners in Confederate prisons on June 13th, and then we had Benny J. McRae discuss a chronology of the participation of people of African descent in the American Civil War. Well, our guest tonight is Robert Scott Davis, and he is the Senior Professor of History at Wallace State College in Hansville, Alabama. He runs a program of continuing education classes in genealogy. His more than 1,000 publications include Ghosts and Shadows of Andersonville, a book that explores the mysteries of the Confederate prison for black, red, and white inmates. He is currently working on biographical essays on free African Americans in Georgia from colonial times to final emancipation in the 1860s, including Fender Lawrence, George Leo, Austin Dabney, Joseph Nunes, Thomas Sims, and Hubbard Pryor. So let me give a warm welcome to Professor Robert Scott Davis to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I want to just start off because I, this book is absolutely the most fascinating book that I have read. And obviously you had a lot of documents that you reviewed to put this book together. 
So before I find out where did you get these resources, tell us about the title, Ghosts and Shadows. Where did that title come from? I teach a class in putting together genealogy books and writing a book and things of this sort. One of the things I stress to my students is the importance of a title. You can have a really lousy book, but if you've got a title that grabs people, they're going to get on board with it. So it is absolutely essential, whatever book you do, whether it's a good book or a bad book, to have a good title. And I really work it. I work as hard on getting a good title for the book as I do anything else in the book. And as usually the case, I stole the title. Uh, there's a really wonderful book, and it's called Shadows and Ghosts of the Titanic. It's a very oh. good book, and I pinched, I pinched the title from that and turned it around because that title says everything I was trying to say in the book. Okay. Well, since you're talking about ghosts and shadows, tell us about those primary and secondary sources you use to bring this, this story to life. Okay, there are two ways that you could write a book about Andersonville. One is you could just simply rehash what everybody else did, or you could try to come up with something different. And I don't recommend the first course. I mean, find something else to do, something you could do that's original. But in the second course, Andersonville as a subject to research is a nightmare. Most of the Confederate prisons, little or no records survive, such as Camp Millen, or Camp Lawton, rather, at Millen, Millen, Georgia. New book has come out on that. The author had to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find anything. But Andersonville's a different kettle of fish. First off, the National Archives and its Washington, D.C. Um, uh, archives, the building there, they have mountains of information of records on Andersonville in record group 249. These are records of the commissary of prisoners. And the Civil War records at the National Archives are very well described in two books by Henry Pudney Beers, The Union and the, his other book, The Confederacy. But there's tons of records there. You could spend weeks going through all of those records just on Andersonville. On the other hand, there were dozens of prisoners who survived Andersonville and published memoirs, uh -huh. and there were dozens of dozens more who wrote memoirs who didn't publish them. So, for example, William H. Smith wrote a fabulous diary about his time at Andersonville. A friend of yes. mine tipped me off to it, and it's at the University of Virginia in, Sh in Charlottesville. I made a special drive up there just from Alabama just to see that diary, and I was not disappointed. He talks about playing baseball at Andersonville. He talks about the first, the only baby that was born at Andersonville, born to one of the two women prisoners there. It's just a spectacular document. But you have to use every Civil War source that's out there, published, private manuscript things, things like WorldCat, which is a free website, or Internet Archive, another free site, to find manuscript collections on Andersonville for your subject. And I, I swear there is so much material out there, you begin to wonder if you're ever going to write the book because of all the time it takes to search out every great source that is brought to your attention. And that doesn't even begin with the stuff that's still in private possession. People find out about your research because you put queries on the Internet at Gen Forum, G-E-N-F-O-R-U-M, another free site, put queries out there, and people contact you 
with the diaries and letters and photographs and things that they have in private possession. Uh, like I said, I, I finally published the book not because I was ready to publish the book, but because after six years of it, I said if I don't publish it now, I never will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it it is definitely fascinating, and there's a comment uh, coming out of the chat. Wow, a baby was born at Andersonville? That's amazing. Uh, oh, yes, yes, and it's quite a mystery to it as well. Uh, her husband was a captain on a ship that was captured by Confederate guerrillas, and uh, she refused to leave him. And he ended up at Andersonville, and she ended up with him. And uh, she was never put in the stockade, the main prison. She uh, had a tent out outside of the stockade with her husband. But nonetheless, she and her husband were robbed of everything that they had. Uh, the local ladies in uh, Sumter County, Georgia, and Macon County, Georgia, had to provide for them and for the baby. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't really know what happened to the baby. Apparently, the baby died. After several months, the baby died at Andersonville and is probably buried somewhere nearby. But the family all disappears for 20 years after they left Andersonville, and then yes. they turn up in Connecticut. And uh, I've been in touch with their descendants. And there's still a lot of mysteries there. And one theory is that they were hiding for 20 years in the New York City area. It was something about the ship, the cargo their ship was carrying when the Confederates captured it. And mm -hmm. uh, some people did not want them to talk about what Captain H Herbert Hunt was actually carrying in his ship. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, it, it's certainly an interesting story, it's a sad story. And to say that you are have communicated with some of the descendants, that's that's also a, probably a whole nother story. Uh, but just to think that some people have uh, the diaries in their private collections and you were able to at least get a hold of some of them and read them is uh, does add so much more to the history of Andersonville. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Uh We'll give you but one example of this. There was a diary I had heard about, and I had to be a private detective to trace the diary down in Texas. And one person who helped me to find the diary because it was in his family was Kenneth Lay. And in those days, I didn't even know who Kenneth Lay was. This is the Kenneth Lay of Enron. And uh, I get oh. this guy on his personal phone, and he tells me where the diary is, and he's very happy to help me. And... Uh, I understand how some people may feel about him, but he's I've, I owe him one to say the least. And his diary is not only helped not only helped me on my Andersonville project, but it's helped many other people who are doing other Civil War projects involving the regiment, and that the 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 lay who owned the diary, uh, who are doing research on that regiment and on him. He had a this guy had an interesting. Career after the Civil War, he ran a school for black children on Sapilo Island in Georgia. And uh, among the papers that came with the diary was a map of Sapilo after the war, showing where the school was and everything. And when I gave this to my friends at Georgia Historic Preservation, they went absolutely ape. Oh, I can imagine. I would definitely go ape to to have a map and a hand drawn map, of course. And wow, that I mean really. 
That is wonderful. Well, now you have you you found the diaries, but I also want to know about the guards. Now, where where will we find information on the guards who were at Andersonville? Okay, that actually proves to be more problematic because the Confederacy lost the war, and a lot of records were lost after the war. Now, there's some things like publication Confederate Veteran, where some of the guards shared their memories. One of the guards published a book after the war that defenders of Andersonville have used ever since, but the man was so passionate in defending the guards at Andersonville, he said some things in his book that were not true. Uh, Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, historians have repeated what he wrote without bothering to check it out with the national, his actual service records at the National Archives. I don't think the man intended to lie. I think he just got a little too over the top with his passions. But uh, the National Archives, at the end of the war, the Union Army seized all the Confederate records it could. Unfortunately, a lot were lost anyway. But the Confederate uh-huh. compiled service records on National Archives microfilm are wonderful, and they're very detailed on the guards at Andersonville. And oddly enough, yeah. there was a difference between the guards and the garrison. Uh, my ancestor belonged was at Andersonville. He belonged to the worst regiment in the Confederate Army, the 55th Georgia. They were uh-huh. so bad, they were sent to Andersonville because nobody wanted them on the battlefield. And uh, they refused to serve in the guard towers guarding prisoners. They said that if they were ever used to guard prisoners, they would open the gates and join the prisoners in escaping to General Sherman. Oh. Uh, their serv- yeah, they, they were a hoot. But anyway, the guards, there's, there's a lot on the guards. The Georgia daughters, United Daughters of the Confederacy have pulled together a lot of letters and private manuscripts of Uh Georgia Confederate soldiers, and these include a number of the guards at Andersonville, and that's a valuable source. Well, I can imagine it is a valuable source. You know, we had a guest on on my show, uh, Bob O'Connor, and he uh, has compiled this this huge database of Confederate prisons. And one of the the big questions I want to know is how many people were actually imprisoned at Andersonville? That is an excellent question. And you see all sorts of numbers that were thrown out, sometimes by the old soldiers in their memoirs, sometimes by the government, sometimes by historians since then. But nobody, only one person has ever sat down and tried to count all of the prisoners, white, black, red, who were at Andersonville. And that was a late late, uh, Jack Lundquist of Minnesota. His wife's ancestor was one of the prisoners at Andersonville, and he made it as his retirement project to create this enormous database of Union Civil War prisoners of war, civilian and military. He came up with a number, and the number is supported by the documents, and it has outside uh, confirmation. His number is that there were just under... 40,000 different prisoners who were held at Andersonville, just under 39,000. Now, Mm -hmm. just under 13,000 died there and are buried in the cemetery, which means that Andersonville had a death rate of right at 33%, and that would make it by far the worst prison north or south with a mortality rate. And Mm -hmm. there's a wonderful old Union Civil War veterans magazine 
called the National Tribune. The Library of Congress has scanned it onto the Internet. You go to the Library of Congress's American Memory website, and you can yeah. search it by word search. Great source. But one of the old veterans in talking about Andersonville there, he said that then in 1890, in 1890, he did not believe that there were 1,000 of the men who had been at Andersonville who were still mm -hmm. alive. I mean, it wasn't just that you could die at Andersonville, which a third of the men did, but you could become so sick from having been at Andersonville that you could still die years later or months later. Yes. Yes. And that and that was just, you know, the direct death, the mental the terrible things that happened to people mentally who were at the prison, both guards and soldiers, uh, was just terrible. And some men mm -hmm. never got over the mental uh stress of being at the prison. Mhm. Mm now, and I could oh gee, I just just to think of this large number of of individuals who were prisons at this uh, this jail is a statement saying that this is, you know, bigger than a small town. And I know that in your book you actually said that it had many of the trappings of a small town. Could you say more about that so that people could just know what, just the whole structure of Andersonville? Okay. The original purpose of Andersonville was that there was a danger that the Union Army was going to liberate the Union prisoners being held at Bell Island in the Confederate capital of Richmond. So in a panic, the Confederate government moves all of the prisoners to as far away from Richmond as they could. The trouble is nobody wanted Andersonville. Nobody wanted this prison in their backyard. And so they finally find a place where supposedly the locals will not complain. The reason the locals won't complain, there's only 20 locals living there, only 75 locals living in the area. And, yes, they did complain, but they didn't have the political clout to stop the prison. The problem with that is you build this prison out in the middle of nowhere, and, by the way, it's just outside of America's Georgia. It's near the Jimmy Carter National Site at Plains, Georgia. In fact, one of Carter's relatives was one of the guards at Andersonville. But, uh, anyway, it was built out there in the boonies, and the trouble is with so few people – there was nobody growing food that could have fed the guards and the prisoners and everyone else mm -hmm. um, out there as um, they were. Now, nonetheless, you've got up to 30,000 Union prisoners in the camp at one time. You have uh, about almost 2,000 guards there and staff and garrison there. And so this becomes a boom town. All these people move there with stores and the rest of it to sell to the guards, sell to the prisoners. Some of the prisoners had money. Some of the prisoners were pretty successful merchants. And so trade is going on. And this becomes like a mining boom town, if you would. And it even had tunnels. Of course, these were the tunnels the prisoners were digging to try to get under the wall and escape. But it had all the trappings of a mining town, a mining boom town there by the railroad. Well, you just mentioned escape. I mean, did anyone successfully escape Andersonville? Now, that was an amazing thing, and believe it or not, that's what actually put me on this project to begin with. I was okay. researching a Civil War spy at the National Archives, and I stumbled into this document, and there were six men listed who had successfully escaped from Andersonville and made it to the Union lines. And I was shocked because somewhere I had read no one escaped from Andersonville. So I looked into this. I even published the list. I did some looking around. Eventually, I found two dozen men 
who at various times and by various means successfully escaped from Andersonville. Hundreds, mm-hmm. maybe thousands of escape attempts were made, however. Even at, in the September of 1864, you could just about have walked away from Andersonville and nobody would have cared. And some groups of 60 and 80 men escaped together, and they were still caught by the local militia, by the local posses, and brought back to the prison or sent to another prison. One mm-hmm. number that was taken from the government records was 169 men escaped from Andersonville, but the truth is it was only about 24. Most of these other men who were listed as escaped were captured somewhere else and taken to another prison, not taken back to Andersonville, which caused mm-hmm. confusion in that number. Right. But it's interesting. Go ahead. Uh, you know, there's an interesting thing about the 24 men who escaped. Now, out of 39,000-plus prisoners, to say anything about 24 of them is kind of statistically dumb, I guess. But it's interesting. I studied those 24 men in detail, and they were men who spent their whole lives running from something, even, uh, I mean, as if somebody were chasing them. And I honestly believe that even if they had been treated well at Andersonville, even if there had not been any war, they would have tried to escape anyway. They suffer from a psychosis called barbed wire disease, and there's just some people who will die if they have to to escape confinement no matter what. And these 24, almost every one of them lived to a ripe old age, Um, and almost all of them were still running in some form or fashion to the day they died. It was almost as if Andersonville was incidental in their lives. They were just people who were not going to be confined anywhere and were going to move on. And probably you and every all your listeners have known people in your life who are the same way. And I can assure you that if they were those people that were put in Andersonville, they'd be on my list of escapees too. <laughs> well, now that which is which is quite interesting. But you also I'm gonna quote something in it, in your book, and I want you to expand on that quote. The Andersonville guards only use demonstrations of force to squelch planned escapes by the prisoners in April, May, and July. Tell us more about that. Okay, the biggest problem Andersonville had was security. You've got 30,000 starving, sick, 39, you have as many as 30,000 sick men who are sick, they are starving, they are scared, they are desperate, and they're in a gigantic open-air pen. You only have, on your best day, 800 guns pointed at them. At any Mm -hmm. time, the prisoners could have overrun the guards, and it would have been all over, and the Confederacy would have had 30,000 desperate men far behind the lines. It would have been like opening a whole new front on the war, and no telling what could have been done to the civilians. Uh, Captain Henry Verts, the officer in charge of the interior of the pen, he was desperate to to keep these men from forming a mass escape. And so what, he, what the Confederate authorities did was every so often they would parade the militia, they would parade the garrison, they would parade the guards, they would show the prisoners how many men they had. They had these cannons that were captured at the Battle of Alusti, Florida. They would fire these cannons into the swamp in the middle of the pen just to remind everybody that the cannons were there, the cannons did work, and the cannons could be used. And this is an ancient tactic for as far as keeping prisoners of war together. In the history yeah. of prisoners of war, there's never been a mass escape, 
ever because the prisoners are so afraid that, you know, they're going to be the ones who die in the mass escape. But yeah. it is only a miracle as far as the Confederacy was concerned that these men did not one night just over climb, climb over the walls or they did not work together with the 55th Georgia, just open the gate and leave. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, they would give these demonstrations to try to frighten the try to fight, frighten the prisoners into uh, not doing this. But the prisoners themselves, from time to time, tried to organize a mass escape. They mm-hmm. set a time or whatever, but informants would rat them out. The leaders would be arrested and put in stocks, and you know uh, the opportunity would pass. But ironically, it's very similar to the situation with the slave rebellions before emancipation. Um, you know, the s- slaves would plan massive rebellions that would set them free and spread across the South, but informants would reveal the plan. In the case of Gabriel Proser in Richmond, just hours before the rebellion was to have happened, and uh, it all comes for naught. Yes, yes. But they really, I mean, they, they really worked on the mind. Uh, they had them at a point where they just, I mean, the, the fear, I can imagine, was just uh, enormous, absolutely enormous. What's well, interesting now, about the uh, tunnels, uh, nobody, there's no record of anybody escaping from Andersonville by a tunnel, despite mm-hmm. the fact there were dozens, maybe even hundreds of tunnels that were tried. And uh, one author believes that the tunnels were not actually with the intention of escaping, they were just a form of recreation. Yeah. You know, let's dig a tunnel yeah. and see if we can uh, keep it past the guards. But many men escaped by various means from Andersonville, but a tunnel was a bad way. The tunnel could cave in. The tunnel could be ratted out by informants. And even and there are even cases where they dug a tunnel under the wall and they got lost. Yeah. And when they finally get to the surface, they're back inside the stockade. <laughs> Oh my God! Oh, this is. This and there was a case awful. once where they, one case once where they brought the tunnel to the surface, and it was right in the middle of a fire that the guards had lit to warm themselves. And the yeah. guards dropped their weapons and ran because the prisoners were so covered in soot and dirt. The guards <laughs> thought the devil had leaped up out of the fire and was going to get them. Wow. Well, there's a question because uh, they want to know, just kind of give give us an idea of some of the methods of escape. For those 24 that did escape, how did they escape? Okay, well, of the hundreds of people who at least got out of the stockade, most of them didn't get very far but got out of the stockade. They okay. had the dead wagon. Every day the dead wagon ah. came through. It had black teamsters. This is the same wagon that brought the prisoners their food twice a day was also the same wagon that the corpses, naked corpses were carried out of the camp. Uh, Anyway, one trick was to uh, strip yourself naked and have yourself thrown by your friends onto the dead wagon. Of course, you'd be compressed under the bodies. And then uh, when you got to the cemetery, you would slip out and make a run for it. Uh, That was one way of doing it. Uh, Some some prisoners escaped that way. The most common Mm -hmm. way is that the camp had required a lot of maintenance, even despite the fact it was just basically a big log pen. It required a Mm -hmm. lot of maintenance. There were at least 300 prisoners a day working and living outside the prison. 
and you wanted to get on one of these work details because you got enough to eat to survive, that William Smith's diary I was telling you about, he's one yeah. of the men who worked outside the prison. You could even socialize with the local civilians. Uh, all of this, in fact, there was one prisoner who, working outside, slipped out of the camp every night and helped himself to a local Rosnier patch. Yeah. And he became so obese, he became probably the only person at Andersonville who could have died from obesity-related ailments. But anyway, most of the prisoners escaped from the work details. They waited till the right moment, and then they either bribed a guard or they knocked the guard unconscious. One prisoner claimed that he strangled the guard with his bare hands and threw him into a river. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite prisoner was the one, and I'm sorry I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but they were having an exchange of sick prisoners, that is, they were yeah. going to send them back to the Union lines, and he knew that if he was not on that train, he was not going to live. So he signs up for this, and the doctor looks at him and says, "No, you're, no, you're going to, you have to stay. You're not sick enough to make the exchange." So he's going back to the stockade, heartbroken, and then yeah. he comes up with this idea. He runs into the stockade. He grabs his sack, his bag runs back out of the stockade, and when the guard yells, what are you doing, he says, the doctor said I'm supposed to get on the train. I just came back to get my bag. And the guard said, well, hurry up. The train's about to leave. <laughs> that was quick <laughs> And he gets thinking. on the train, and he gets that on an exchange like that he was, not, uh, he was not supposed to be on. He lived right. to a ripe old age. Well, that the was interesting thing, really though, about thing. it is the dogs, uh, the dogs at Andersonville. Um, the dogs, there's no recorded instance of the dogs ever biting anybody. Mm -hmm. About the worst thing the guards at Anderson, the dogs at Andersonville would have done is maybe licked you to death. But it made it very hard to be a black prisoner and escape from Andersonville. Only one black prisoner is known to have escaped from Andersonville, and I have no details on how he did it, which okay. I'm very disappointed on. But the problem for the black prisoners is that these dogs were trained to hunt escaped slaves. Uh -huh. So if you're black, you have a particular problem in escaping from Andersonville. And, in fact, there's stories the white prisoners tell of hiding behind a tree and the pack of dogs running right past them and never knowing they were there. But oh, that would not work with a – yeah, that would not work with a black prisoner uh, because they were specially trained to hunt African Americans, if you would. Yes, which is which is quite sad indeed. Well, I'm going to give you a quick break. We're going to come back on because we have a whole lot to talk about. So a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you, ma'am.
Beach at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can also be downloaded from iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Professor Robert Scott Davis, and he has been discussing his book, Ghosts and Shadows of Andersonville, Essays on the Secret Social Histories of America's Deadliest Prison. Now, I have opened the lines for any of you who are interested in actually talking to Professor Davis, and you can call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Well, I also have a question coming out of the chat, and the question is about the emaciated soldiers whose photos have been seen. Did many of them survive at least? for a few years to tell their stories? No. I mean, some of them probably did. I don't know that anybody's done statistics on that. There's a wonderful set of books of the medical history of the Civil War that includes pictures of Andersonville survivors. But these photographs need to be qualified. Many of these men are dying from things that were not Andersonville-related, and they would have died anyway. Uh, In other words, Civil War disease killed more men than bullets did during the Civil War. And Uh what was the great killer at Andersonville was disease from putting so many people in such close contact with one another, just as in any army camp on either side, that would have been a problem. What made it so bad at Andersonville is that the prisoners and the guards, I might add, were all so malnourished that disease, that uh, they were less able to fight off the disease, less able to survive. But some mm-hmm. of the photographs of the, prisoner, of the prisoners where you see them in mass, they look so horrible, they were actually dying of cancer or something like that, not directly from something at Andersonville. On the other hand, if there had been a photographer at Andersonville to photograph the dead every day or something, those would be pretty horrible photographs as well. Yes, most definitely. There's also another question coming out of the chat. Was your Davis ancestry at Andersonville? No. Uh, my, my Davis line has a very odd Civil War history. Uh, basically, well, basically they disappeared into the My family disappeared in the smoke at the Battle of Baker's Creek. But it's, I have other relatives who were connected to Andersonville in some way or another. My ancestor, who was in the 55th Georgia, was Hugh Columbus Martin, uh, who was a full, full, quite a scamp. He ends up running out on his family after the war. Uh, he wasn't that great a guy before the war either. Perfect private to be in the worst regiment in the Confederate Army. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've known, I've met a lot of descendants of the guards, and it's one of the things that's amazing. Many of the guards formed friendships with the prisoners during the war at Andersonville. And they kept up those friendships and correspondence after the war. And a friend of mine who used to be a director of a state archives, his 
his his one of the guards became a good friend of another guard from another part of the state. The two families stayed in contact after the war, and uh, eventually the son from one of family married the daughter from another family from across Georgia because the family stayed in touch, and he descends from that marriage. And these were two guards from different parts of Georgia who met at a horrible place called Andersonville and formed not just a lifetime friendship between themselves but between their families too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you would, a well, family that began at Andersonville. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. So now, I, I, you know, we were talking, I, I guess, Monday about uh, the role African Americans played at Andersonville, and I'd like you now to just explain to everyone exactly what was that role. Okay, first before that, let me say uh, I'm going to be giving a talk at Andersonville on that very subject. And it's a free talk, and it's at Andersonville at the museum there on that night on January 25th. I'll be speaking on African Americans at Andersonville, and it's free and open to the public at Andersonville okay. National Historic Site. Okay. Would you say the that date Ameri- again, please? Yes, ma'am. January 25th. January 25th, okay. which is a sa- 25th. which is a Saturday. Saturday, okay, January 25th, I'm speaking at Andersonville that night on African Americans in Andersonville. They had everything to do with Andersonville, literally from the beginning to the end. Men and women who were impressed from plantations built the stockade and built the camp, and there was always around 500 impressed slaves put to work building more, building fortifications to protect the camp building buildings for the camp, on and on. Many of them suffered and died because they weren't well-fed, they were not well-treated. Black prisoners of war were sent to Andersonville without regard to their race. The white officers who commanded the black soldiers at Andersonville in the Civil War, they were not sent to an officer's prison, but they were sent to Andersonville anyway, even though they were officers. And worse than that, the Confederate officials at Andersonville refused to allow white officers of black troops to be exchanged under any circumstances. So if you're a white officer caught commanding black troops, you're going to be there with your black troops at Andersonville, and you're going to be there till the end of the war when they release all of the prisoners. Now, of the men who escaped from Andersonville, whether they were successful at it or not, almost every escape story that I read that I believed Every escape story that I read that I believed involved African Americans helping the prisoners to escape. And this is one of the strangest ironies of Andersonville. You are a white soldier. You've come south to end slavery and to free African Americans. Maybe that wasn't your intention, but that's what you're there for anyway. You are captured by the Confederacy. You are put in Andersonville stockade. Maybe you're even put in chains. You escape from Andersonville, you are chased by the camp dogs, which are trained to hunt slaves, and you're not going to reach the federal lines, you're not going to reach the federal navy, you're not going to escape unless African Americans help you, and they risk their lives time and time again to help the prisoners. And it's so funny, the Underground Railroad was white people helping escape slaves through the free states to Canada. In the slaves in Georgia, in the South, created their own underground railroad to help white men to escape from bondage 
to Mm -hmm. reach the federal lines, men who had come south to free them. And uh, you you read these memoirs, and they're so grateful. They're so grateful uh, to the slaves time and time again for saving them. And Mm -hmm. then after the war, Andersonville was a freedman's school, and the the Freedmen's Bureau ran a camp there for former slaves for African Americans at Andersonville, and it was attacked by the Ku Klux Klan, led by the very man who persuaded the Confederacy to build Andersonville to begin with. But the buildings at Andersonville were used as a slave, a former slave community, as a school, and uh, a Freedmen's Bureau facility after the war. Well, isn't that interesting? So Anderson, but now you're talking about the school. Did you find school records and other uh, documentation no, I, about the school? No, I did not find any documentation about the school, unfortunately. But the soldiers mentioned that, the uh, Confederate, Confederate soldiers and their reminiscences after the war mention it. There is a, uh, the man who owned the land where Andersonville was at sued the federal government for the, la- for the land. He wanted the federal government to pay for the land, particularly where the cemetery was, mm-hmm. or else he wanted the federal government to release it to him. In this, he complains about the Freedmen's School that was there. I'm hoping oh, that more okay. information on this will turn up as the more Freedmen's Bureau records are made available online that you can search by name because much yes. of the Freedmen's Bureau records are very difficult to work in. But more of it is being scanned and digitized and indexed all the time. Plus, I believe at least one of the WP slaves that the former slaves that the WPA interviewed in the 1930s, I believe at least one of them was at the Andersonville School. Uh-huh. And believe it or not, one of the slaves who built, former slaves rather, who actually built the stockade, he lived until the 1930s, and he gave the WPA an interview. And he had Do you absolutely have his no name? Because that would be interesting to read. Well, I would, if I had thought of it, I would have looked it up in my book. But he's in my book. He's cited in my book. Uh, go okay. to the Library of Congress, to the WPA interviews, and type in Andersonville, and he will, he will come up. But I quote him extensively because he had no use for Andersonville. He, he all but calls what was done to the Union Prisoners of War at Andersonville a crime against humanity. Uh-huh. He used the best words that he had for saying that was a horrible place and there was no way, this is no way to treat other human beings, which coming from a former slave, I put special merit to. Yes, yes. So what is the best recommendation you would give to study the few black soldiers who were at Andersonville? That is a very tough question. Uh, I've written extensively about how the men escaped from Andersonville and how the slaves helped them. But in all the times that I've found where slaves helped white prisoners to escape, not once does anybody ever mention the name of the slave who helped them. I've got a few cases where I know the name of the plantation where the slaves were helping them. In fact, uh, one of the plantations where the slaves helped an escaped prisoner was uh, owned by a former school chum of Abraham Lincoln's. He, I mean, the, the overseer on the plantation was that. And it was amazing the things that they did. In one instance, there was one poor prisoner, 
his feet were so torn up they had to they had to nurse him back to health mm-hmm. at their plantation. And when they smuggled him out, they dressed him as a black girl because he was so skinny. Mm-hmm. Uh, they dressed him mm-hmm. as a black girl, uh, I guess, with black face paint and the rest of it. I suppose. Although at Andersonville, you would have been covered so covered in black soot. Maybe the face paint wasn't necessary. But at one point, they smuggled him out in a wagon dressed as a slave girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But there was nothing. Uh, they gave him the best thing that the, the African-Americans gave the escaped prisoners a lot of good things to help them. One of the most valuable things is that the slaves had experience in how to escape, how to elude the dogs, how to elude the slave patrols. And they used that valuable experience to help the prisoners to escape. Well, that's that's one piece of knowledge that they definitely had <laughs> to to share share that with with others. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat, and what was the closest town again to Andersonville? Okay, first off, Andersonville was just a railroad siding called Anderson Station. It mm-hmm. almost immediately became known as Anderson, popularly known as Andersonville. The town there now, which is uh, partly has a tourist as a tourist industry there, the town there is today called Andersonville. It's just outside of the national park. It adjoins the okay. national park. It's 30 okay. minutes from Plains, Georgia, and it's almost as close to America's Georgia. Okay. Yes. Because some in, so in the uh, chat yeah. are put in Americas, yes. Yes, you now, can go you... there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You go can ahead. go there, and uh, you can after you've seen Andersonville and the National Prisoner of War Museum at Andersonville, and you've toured Andersonville, you can then go down the road to the Jimmy Carter National Historic Site in Plains, which is just yes. fabulous. It's a small town in Georgia in the 1940s. And you can also go to nearby Lumpkin, Georgia, to a reconstructed southern pre-Civil War town called Westville. And it's just like this is the Georgia that Scarlett O'Hara would have known. And mm-hmm. Westville is just mm-hmm. super. And you come back by way of Columbus, you can see the Civil War Naval Museum there. There's just so much to see and do in that region. And Andersonville is a jewel in the crown, but there's a lot else also to stop and see. Plan on spending a few days there. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not that member. Of, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. You're not. Part I'm of not a member field. of the Chamber of Commerce, so that's this is <laughs> that's that's a free plug. Right, right. Well, now I know that there's there's a lot of facts of which you've presented us, but there's just some myths about Andersonville. So just tell us, you know, the facts and the myths, because they've been floating okay, for yeah. years. Well, when I open my book, I talk about two of the greatest myths, and I figured that I was probably going to be burned at the stake for what I said because it runs against what so many people want to believe. But the thing of it is everybody read what they wanted to believe, and they ignored what I wrote that they didn't want to believe. So I come out a hero to everybody, I guess. The greatest myth to come out of Andersonville, the greatest myth was that there were northern prisons as bad as Andersonville. Mm-hmm. There were not. There is no place, there is no prison in the history of the United States that is as bad as Andersonville. Even Elmira, which was a horrible place, and I'm not saying Camp Douglas and Elmira 
and Skandusky and these other prisons were not terrible places. They were terrible places. I wouldn't want to spend time there. But none uh-huh. of them were in the same league with Andersonville. There were some Confederate prisons that were pretty bad, Salisbury and Florence, for example. And if they had stayed open long enough, they might have been as bad or worse than Andersonville. But they weren't open long enough. The conditions were not that bad. So the first myth, I would say, is that there were northern prisons as bad as Andersonville. give you a classic okay. example. Elmira, the prisoners were mad because they had to burn wood in the stoves in their barracks. They wanted coal. At Andersonville, they did not have barracks. There was an open-air pen. They did not have wood was a luxury. The, the Confederates cut back on the wood because the men who went out on the wood uh, wood projects, they would run off. So there was very little wood. Uh, and there was, they said the prisoners, the Confederates at Elmira complained about not getting coal. At Andersonville, they didn't even have stoves or barracks. They were lucky when they had wood. That That is the example to it. Now, the reason that the northern death rate is not that much better than Andersonville was because disease was rampant, and also yeah. the southern boys were not used to the cold climate of Chicago and New York and places like that, which made yeah. matters worse. Now, they, you know, there was a lot of horrible people running very horrible prison camps in the north and in the south, but... Andersonville was, there is no Andersonville of the North. The other great myth is that Andersonville was designed by the Confederacy to be some sort of a death camp, some kind of like the Chinese prison camps in World War II or like Auschwitz or something in uh, Europe. The Confederacy never intended to hurt people at Andersonville. The idea was to find a place where there would be plenty to eat, that would be far away from the war so the prisoners could not escape, where the prisoners could build their own barracks. But the war fell apart so fast that the prisoners kept arriving faster than accommodations could be built for them. There was no Mm -hmm. food at Anderson Station. The situation got very desperate for everybody who was there. But nobody tried to hurt anybody at Andersonville. It was a terrible set of circumstances. And if people do not think that something like that could happen, that I'm just covering for my Confederate relatives, then I ask them to take a look at Katrina and what happened after it and uh, tell me that that was somebody's conspiracy to hurt a lot of people. I don't think mm-hmm. so. Andersonville was not either. But nonetheless, a third of the prisoners there are still there in the graves, and people suffered and died. The other myth was the one started by that guard who wrote a memoir who said that the guards died at the same rate the prisoners did, and that's mm-hmm. not true. The guards died at a much smaller rate, but nonetheless, guards did suffer there and guards did die there. Right. Well, I mean, just the just the whole public health or the lack of uh, with the, the and starvation. I guess there wasn't food for anybody. It was so bad that a civilian named Spencer Ambrose, I mean, Ambrose Spencer, I beg your pardon, Ambrose Spencer, he said that you could smell Andersonville miles before you got there. If you look over the wall, and it was Andersonville was a tourist attraction from the very beginning. You, uh-huh. If you looked over the wall, the ground seemed to move because it was covered in bugs. There were no trees inside the stockade to provide shade. It was just horrible. 
But it was so bad that the guards on the wall would get this face ailment from just being exposed to the air coming out of the prison. And the commandant mm-hmm. of the prison, a General John Winder, he contracted this face disease from the one time he was on the wall. And as far as trying to murder anybody goes, uh, Henry Wirtz, the officer in charge of the interior of the stockade, that's another myth. Wirtz did not, was never commanded at Andersonville. He was never the commandant at Andersonville. He was a mid-level bean counter. But yet, after the Civil War, the Union Army hanged him. But uh, Wirtz did everything he could for the prisoners, but everything he did for the prisoners, some of the worst prisoners would undo. And General Winder, who was the commandant, he gets so desperate, he actually pleads with the Confederacy to release the prisoners, to send them yeah. back home, at least the sick prisoners, because he says uh-huh. humanity, humanity demands. Humanity demands if we cannot take care of these people, then we should send them back to their own lines. These are not the words of monsters. And, in fact, after most of the prisoners were evacuated from the prison and the population was way down, what do these people do? They build barracks, they build ovens, they build a hospital for the remaining prisoners, which they would have done for all the prisoners if they'd had the resources, which they they did not. Right. And there's a comment coming out, and really it's a question. Uh, Who designed Andersonville? is the first question that's coming out. Uh, Major Captain Richard Winder, who is General Winder's nephew, I believe. Um, okay. There were so many Winders involved in Andersonville, and they're all related. And I can't, or Actually, the name is pronounced Winder. I have a friend who's writing a book about them, and she's yeah. all the time correcting me on that. But the family name is Winder. Uh, but the town in Georgia that's named for the family is pronounced Winder, which is kind of funny I guess but uh, anyway he set up the camp but basically the camp was just a rectangular stockade that was intercepted by intersected by a creek and a swamp mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it was hor- it was absolutely horrible but after the after Andersonville was being when Andersonville was being closed the Confederacy opened a new prison near Millen Georgia it was designed by the same man it was roomy it had trees in it uh, it had food. It had everything that Andersonville was supposed to have. And the prisoners who were shipped to this Camp Lawton at Millen, Georgia, they thought that they had died and gone to heaven after Andersonville. Well, I guess but, so, because they were in a better uh, a better prison. But there's one more question I want to ask you. And you mentioned Captain Wirtz, and you indicated that he had been executed but could you just explain to the listeners uh, or give us your opinion, did he deserve to be executed? Absolutely not. He was a foul-mouthed, uh, mean-spirited man, but uh, he would cussed everybody out. But, you know, if you're going to hang people because they're disagreeable, then I'm in a lot of trouble, and I need to change my name and go into hiding. But... Um, the thing of it is, most of the the only Confederate officer most of the prisoners ever met was was Wirtz. Wirtz was also Swiss. He spoke with a German accent. Uh, there was a huge amount of prejudice in America against Germans, and also, believe it or not, against the Swiss as well. And so, none of that worked in, in Wirtz's favor. At the end of the war, the United States government wanted to hold somebody accountable for Andersonville. All of Wirtz's superiors, like Winder, were either dead or um, they knew somebody who could get them off the hook. So all of Wirtz's superiors either escaped by death uh, 
or they escape because they're native-born Americans. Wirtz was the highest-ranking officer at Andersonville who had nobody to save him. And he was tried by military tribunal or military commission, which should not be confused with a court-martial. This mm-hmm. military tribunal uh, commission stuff is what we want to do with the terrorists at Guantanamo. It's a kangaroo court. Wirtz never stood a chance. I like what William Marvel wrote. He said Wirtz was a dead man walking. But in a military tribunal, you're already guilty. The only question is, what are we going to do to you? It was so bad that Wirtz's lawyer, a man named Oren Baker from New York, who volunteered at no charge to defend Wirtz, he was nearly thrown in jail for mounting a defense. He was not allowed. Can you imagine a court? where the defense lawyer is not allowed to call witnesses. He is questioning, is cut off by the court, and he's not allowed to mount a proper defense for his law for his client. In fact, one of the men who showed up there, he was a camp cook, he was a private, he shows up at Wirtz's trial to testify on Wirtz's behalf. And there were Union prisoners of war who were there to testify for Wirtz. But the camp cook shows up, and instead of being allowed to testify, he's put in arrest. Yeah. He is sent to 50, he's sentenced to 15 years of hard labor for being the cook at Andersonville. I mean, but Wirtz was convicted of doing terrible things to prisoners who know, whose names nobody knew in instances that nobody could remember what day occurred and instances where nobody actually witnessed Wirtz committing the crimes. I mean, that would never stand up in a military court-martial. That would never stand up in a civilian court but it stood up just fine in this kangaroo court, and Wirtz hanged, which is he was probably dying anyway. And yeah. even even when given the chance of claiming that Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis were responsible for Andersonville, to the very end he refused to uh, to uh, even to save his own neck. He refused to lie and blame other people for what happened there. Yes, yes. Oh, this is something else. Well, we are actually at the end of the show, and so do you have any any parting words to those who may want to continue to read up on Andersonville? Uh, yes, uh, there are, believe it or not, only a very few books that were done by scholars like William Marvel uh, on Andersonville, only a very few books, so it's not a, a great deal of reading material out there um, as far as that goes. The best thing to do is to plan a trip to, again, I sound like the Chamber of Commerce, plan a trip to southwest Georgia to the Americas, Albany, Columbus area. Visit Andersonville for yourself. You can read about it, and certainly I recommend that you do that before the trip, but you really can't experience the place until you've been there. You've actually seen it for yourself. Well, I want to thank you so much for bringing this history to to the listening audience. Certainly people have more information than they had before, and thank you so very much for, for coming on tonight. Well, I want everybody to know that next week we're going to have genealogist Char McCargo Barr, and she will be discussing who's in the house. So please join the show next week. So good night. Thank you very much, Professor Robert Scott Davis, the author of Ghosts and Shadows of Andersonville, Essays of the Secret Social Histories of America's Deadliest Prison. 
You can continue this discussion on genealogy on the genealogy and history forum of Afrogenius.com and the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji, which is usually broadcast on uh, Friday morning. And also listen to Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and this show is sponsored by BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, Bob. Good night, everyone. Thank you, ma'am.